and welcome to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I hope that y'all like the intro. I switched it up a little bit today because I thought it would be fun. That's truly the only motivation I had for it. Outside of that, I had a pretty good week. I hope y'all had a, a really fun week too. Um, when I was little, and by little I mean like 10, I had taken a book from my parents. They got it from Reader's Digest. But it was a book called Strange Stories and Amazing Facts. And it indeed had a ton of strange stories and some truly amazing facts. And at the time, one of the stories was Jack the Ripper, which of course took all of my attention because it was just so grisly. Um, but the other story that was interesting to me was Spring-Heeled Jack. And in the book, there was only a one-pager, and it, it really kind of made light of what he did. And when I did a little bit of more research for this show, or for this episode, it was a little bit more to do than all of that. I think in the book, it just said that he was silly, and he would just jump out of a hedge or something and, like, tickle a lady, maybe scratch her a little bit, but that would be the end of it. But that was not the case, and we're going to get into that right now. Before we do that, though, I really want to set the scene of where we're at, because in our last episode, while we did leave off in the 1800s and then, you know, kind of fast-forwarded to modern day, I think we should just go back to the 1800s. The 19th century, in general, is my favorite century, because we see the, the blossom of the middle class, right? And we're also seeing a lot of technological advances, which also kind of splintered into a lot of little advances that weren't necessarily advances by way of, um, you know, inventions, little things that people would sell door to door, snake oil type things. Um, that sort of stuff, stuff is just like, oh man, I don't know. It is so fascinating to me what people would buy into, machines that people would buy into. It was just a really fun time. And I don't want to say just the 19th century because, I mean, it goes into the, the 20th century as well, up until I would say like 1960 or so. You're still seeing a lot of these little machines. If you are like me and like watching these kitchen advertisements, um, they have a lot of them on Amazon Prime. I don't know why I like them so much, but they have so many cool little gadgets for the kitchen. And while like we have gadgets now, but it was nothing like the 50s had. It was so cool. Y'all should watch it. That's my point. I, again, I do not work for Amazon Prime or Amazon in any way, shape or form, but watch those kitchen ads because they're so fun and so cute. It's like, if I got a new kitchen, my whole life would be better. Like my kids would be better behaved. My marriage would be better. I would make better coffee. All of that is like what these kitchen ads uh, purport. So you should definitely watch the narrative trip. So let's go ahead and set this scene too. So we are in London in 1837. And this is the first half, half of the 19th century. Um, we're seeing, like I said, that middle class. We're going to be seeing London grow larger than it was before, spreading out and up into new infrastructure and factories. And by the way, the Industrial Revolution, it had started back in like 1760, but it had really fully like grown and had been felt by the 1830s. 
So London was a super busy place. We had a lot going on. And in 1837, we had just entered in to my other favorite part of the 19th century, the Victorian era. So love, love, love it. Can't even say how much I love it. Queen Victoria Alexandrina, Alexandrina, I can't say that in a cool way where it sounds like I've always said Alexandrina, but anyway, she ascended the throne at 18 years old in June of 1837. And this really meant that the city was expanding so rapidly that there were not enough social programs to take care of those that the um, growth had displaced. So there were large disparities in wealth that were going to start getting a little smaller with more opportunities in trade and manufacturing. But with that, we had more and more people going to work and more and more women walking to and from their jobs. Another thing that was interesting about this time period is that Victorian morality had started to really change the city that we left in our last episode. London in the medieval times, Middle Ages, and then getting kind of out of that it was rowdy, it was quick to riot, it was dirty, it was rude. I mean, back then, people really were into these public executions and they were like, yeah, stick his head on a spike, I want to see it for the next six months, type stuff. Christ alive. Um, but in 1837, the French Revolution had only been about like 47 years prior to this. Um, and unlike what the monarchy thought at the time, the English people really thought that that beheading, like that rampant beheading stuff was just brutish and it was rude. Quite honestly, it's really rude to like behead people. Um, and it's not like they didn't have their reasons to revolt. They absolutely did. But the English people felt as though it was just too much. And so there was a lot of morality when it came to that um, and how you should treat your fellow man. But there is also an evangelical movement brought on by the nonconformists that was sweeping through the city. And that really pressured government officials to change laws that inhibited behaviors. And Victorian London in general decried debauchery of any kind. Like the out in the open types of brothels that had been running were largely put back into the shadows. And that cohabitation that we see with usually the poorer class and the, um, the working class really doesn't take place. I mean, studies show that it wasn't just the upper class, the wealthy and the middle class that adhered to these Victorian standards of being very prim and proper and um, being engaged to somebody and still not sleeping with them, things like that, not living with them outside of marriage. Even in the lower classes, there was still maybe 5% of people who did that. So it had gone drastically down uh, from where it was. and. If you'll remember in our last episode, we had an engaged couple that were already sleeping together and it just was a thing that was done at that point. But now with this morality coming through, we really don't see that anymore. It was a really genteel time, to be honest. So this finds us in a new London, one where a man attacking a woman would have actually made the papers because it was rude. It was just like, not just like beheading, but hello, it was still rude. And not only that, it was lewd, and that was just not allowed. So rumors of ghosts attacking women in London were popping up quite a bit in the early 19, or 1800s. The Hammersmith and the Southampton ghosts were reportedly roaming the streets and attacking people as early as 1824. The Southampton ghost 
was reportedly 10 feet tall and could leap over buildings, a trend which we're going to see a lot in this story. So I don't know what the Victorians had with that, but there it is. So the first sightings of Spring-Heeled Jack, because of these two ghosts, were just not taken seriously. But that was about to change. In October of 1837, Mary Stevens had just finished visiting her parents in Battersea, a district of Southeast London. She was on her way to work as a maid for a family in Lavender Hill, which I ended up looking up because it was super, it sounded super cute. It sounds idyllic and just beautiful. And actually it really is still, it's more high density and residential right now. But back then there was still lavender fields growing and it was really only about a 15 minute walk from Battersea to Lavender Hill. Um, you know, give or take where her parents lived at the time. But when I looked it up on Google Maps, it was about a 15 uh, minute walk. But because there were still lavender fields and because 15 minutes is still a fairly long walk, there were still places for assailants to hide at this point. So Mary made her way from Battersea. And while walking through Clapham Common, she was suddenly attacked by a large figure that had leapt at her from a darkened alley. It gripped her tightly in its arms, completely paralyzing her in fear. Then it started to assault her by clawing and ripping her clothes, touching her and kissing her. Mary said that his hands were cold and clammy as those of a corpse. And scared though she was, she screamed really loudly, as loud as she could, alerting people in nearby houses. Spring-heeled Jack ran away. When they came out to see, the residents, when they came out to see what the commotion was, they immediately began a search for the attacker, but they didn't find anyone. The next day, Spring-heeled Jack struck again, kind of. He tried, anyway. He allegedly jumped in front of a moving carriage onto a woman, but missed somehow. Um, the carriage driver was so startled and distracted by this that he crashed his carriage, severely hurting himself in the process. Jack, laughing in what was reported to be a high-pitched and maniacal laugh, left over a nine-foot wall to get away. And this, even though I've been already calling him Spring-Heeled Jack, this is where he's recognized by the neighborhood papers as Spring-Heeled Jack. On January 9th, 1838, Lord Mayor of London, Sir John Cowan, revealed a letter written by a, quote, resident of Peckham that suggested that not only had more unreported attacks occurred, but that more would follow. And I'm going to go ahead and read that letter. So here goes. It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear, and a devil. And moreover, that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses, two of whom are not likely to recover, but to become burdens to their families. 
At one house, the, ran the man rang the bell, and on the servant coming to the open door, this worse than brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a specter clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses. The affair has now been going on for some time, and, strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their finger ends, but, through interested motives, are induced to remain silent. And that was the end of the letter. While the Lord Mayor was already very skeptical about even reading this letter, a member of the audience confirmed, after hearing it, that this had indeed been going on. And like I said, it made the newspapers in the neighborhoods. So I'm not sure what they're talking about by it not being in the papers. It had been already. Not in the major, the main London paper, but it was in others. After this, though, letters started pouring into his office regarding this widely known attacker. And after the news of the letter came out, reports came in from families taking care of the victims, women who'd had their clothes clawed off of them, some of which after that being reduced to constant panic attacks or what they called fits and swoons and what we might know, know more now as just PTSD maybe from being attacked pretty that's pretty violent especially for this time period it's pretty violent on February 19th Jane Alsop was at her family or father's house when she heard a knock at the door when she opened it a policeman wearing a long cloak told her we've caught spring-heeled Jack here in the lane she quickly grabbed a candle and joined him in the lane to help light his way what a nice girl the moment she handed him the candle, though, he threw off his cloak. She says, he presented the most hideous and frightful appearance. He began vomiting blue and white flames from his mouth, while his eyes seemingly burned into red balls of fire. Then she started looking at his whole appearance. He was wearing some sort of helmet that kind of resembled an oil skin. And if you don't know what that is, because I did not, it is a piece of cotton or cotton clothing that is soaked in oil, so it's waterproof, which is weird and interesting that he would be wearing that. Um, then again, it may not have been that, it just may have looked like it. And she had said that it had, it was really close to his skin, like it was really, really, really tight. Um, then again, it's Victorian England, so take from that what you will. It may have just been like a t-shirt looking thing. So as she's looking at this, and she's really kind of taking a mental note of what he's wearing and what his face looks like all on fire and stuff. You know, maybe that's, no, because oil is a, it's a fire starter. So, you know what, I don't know. Um, he grabs hold of her while she's looking at him and he begins tearing off her gown with his, what seemed like, and it's her words, metallic claws. She broke free and ran towards her father's house with Spring Hill Jack tearing at her neck arms and back chasing her. She was screaming so loud that it caught the attention of her sister who came out to help and that scared Jack away. Nine days later, another girl is attacked. 18 year old Lucy Scales and her sister had been visiting their brother at his home in a lovely part of Wynne House. 
Right as they left his house, they were passing a street called Green Dragon Lane. They saw a gentleman in the shadows turned away from them, wearing a long cloak. Just as they came upon him, with Lucy reaching his vicinity first, he suddenly turned around and spit blue flames in her face. Lucy was so startled by this that she fell to the ground and had a seizure, which continued on and off for several hours. Lucy's reaction and her sister's presence scared Jack right off into the night. Their brother had heard the screams and also came out to see what had happened. His sister described the attacker to him as a man of tall, thin, gentlemanly appearance, covered in a large cloak, carrying a lantern like the ones policemen carried. At this, the London Times finally picked the story up and published a history of the attacks and what attempts had been made by police to capture the, quote, devil, spring Jack. Thomas Milbank had been bragging in the Morgan's arms to his friends and anyone else that would listen that he was spring Jack. And Ferrer was so high at this point that he was arrested immediately by a one James Lee. The, and it could, have been, it could be Leah, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm gonna go with Lee, it's L-E-A. The officer that had also arrested the Red Barn murderer, William Quarter. So for those interested, William Quarter shot his fiance, Maria Martin, dead in a barn after promising to elope with her. Then he buried her in that same barn, which was her family's barn. He sent her family letters, supposedly by her, stating that she was healthy and happy uh, with her marriage to William Quarter and that she just wouldn't be back for a long time, if ever. Her body was found after her stepmother dreamt that Maria was murdered and buried in that barn, which of course we know she was. The murder was sensationalized and William was finally found having gotten married to someone new and started a new life in London. He was ultimately arrested by Officer Lee and was taken back to Suffolk to stand trial for his crime, and he was eventually found guilty and hanged for this. Um, because it was such a sensational murder case, plays and penny dreadfuls were written about it, and James Lee was notable for having finally caught the murderer. So of course, if he had the chance to catch spring Jack, he was going to take it. Thomas was put on trial for the attack on Jane Alsip, which I've also heard pronounced Alesip, but it's really only once that I heard that, so I'm going to go ahead and say Alsip, um, and if anybody wants to correct me, then please do, because I would like to know how to pronounce it. Anyway, he was put on trial for her attack, but she insisted that her attacker was able to breathe fire, and Thomas kind of reluctantly um, admitted that he really couldn't breathe any sort of flame, much less blue flames. And I mean, when I saw that where he was just like, not saw him because I, I didn't, um, but when I heard that he was kind of sad that he couldn't breathe fire, I mean, yeah, wouldn't we all like to breathe fire? But that's just not the time to be like, no, I can't breathe flames. Don't you not want to be convicted? I would think, Thomas crazy. Um, anyway, Penny Dreadfuls began circulating, uh, featuring exploits of Spring Hill Jack in and around London. So not only did we have the Penny Dreadfuls for all the other crimes like the Red Barn murder, but now we're going to get into Spring Hill Jack, Spring Heeled Jack, 
Penny Dreadfuls. He even replaced the devil character in some of the Punch and Judy puppet shows, which I had to look it up. It's um, those little dolls that punch. Um, they're like street puppet shows. That's what Punch and Judy are. It's really cute. I wish we had more of them here because they're kind of adorable. After the attack on Lucy Scales, sightings of him were fewer and farther between, but they did become more widespread. In Northamptonshire, there was a sighting that described him as the very image of the devil himself, with horns and eyes of flame. In East Anglia, it wasn't the ladies that had to be worried. Attacks by Spring-Heeled Jack were common, but only on drivers of mail coaches. I mean, have you been to the post office? I get it. Whoever was that copycat, like, I, you know what? I can see it. That's all I'm going to say. In July of 1847, a sighting of Spring Hill Jack turned into an investigation and a conviction. Captain Fitch, Finch, I keep wanting to say Fitch because it's just, it's easier. I'm not sure why. Probably because of the N and Captain, so Captain Finch. A local police officer had been assaulting women in Tenmouth, Devon. He would dress in bollocks, in a bollocks hide, which is like a leather cloak, um, a skull cap, horns, and a mask. He was convicted on two of these attacks, but I'm quite sure there would be, there was plenty because it, it always kind of works that way. If you're going to go that far as to have a whole little disguise, chances are the two were not the only ones. Um, he's also been linked to the mysterious devil's footprints in Devon, which we were going to cover. I was going to cover today, but I ended up choosing Spring-Heeled Jack because of that nice memory of reading the Strange Stories and Amazing Facts book when I was little. But we will get to the devil's footprints, um, maybe on a side note episode because it's, it's pretty quick. Um, but yeah, it's still interesting though. I, I still wonder how they did it. But anyway. The sightings of Spring-Heeled Jack continued into the 1870s, and a famous case had the Aldershot Barracks on alarm. And this one's probably my favorite story because it does go back to that kind of silly um, character that I thought he was. Um, but yeah, in August of 1877, a sentry on night duty at the North Camp caught sight of something really large and peculiar moving in the dark. And as the creature got closer and closer, he told it to stop where it stood or he would shoot. And get this, it did not listen. Um, it went right up to the sentry. And all of the reports I've read said that it landed several slaps on his face. And I can just imagine this tall gentleman just slapping a sentry around and not like violently, just little gentleman-like slaps. It just sounds really funny to me. Um, of course, the, the sentry starts shooting, but Spring-Heeled Jack never registered any of the shots, or so it seemed. He just bounded and leapt away, laughing the whole time. Some say the sentry might have been shooting blanks or that he was just firing warning shots, not wanting to kill the creature. Um, but I don't know. I don't think so. I don't... Why would you even have blanks? For one thing, I think if anything, it was probably more warning shots or just it never happened, just probable, especially late at night. All kinds of things can seem like all kinds of things and they not, they aren't necessarily that. So they're not necessarily demonic creatures that slap you. 
The sightings at the barracks continued and resulted in the Aldershot sentries being issued extra ammunition so that they could shoot the night terror on the spot. And that is a quote. Their name for it was the night terror, which is a little bit terrifying. The man in charge of the barracks, Lord Ernest Hamilton, wrote about the attacks in his 1922 memoir called, and this is the most English thing I've ever heard, 40 years on. That's it. 40 years on. Um, that's a terrible accent, but I don't care. Um, he seemed to remember them being pranks carried out by a Lieutenant Alfrey. Alfrey was never court-martialed for the pranks, or at least there was no record of him being court-martialed for the pranks, but he certainly would have been if that was what was happening. So I don't know. I, I think it was just like the first attacks. I think it was partially um, hysteria. Maybe there was a little bit uh, of a prank going on, but we will probably never know, at least in that case. Sightings continued in Lincolnshire and Liverpool, with the last sighting being in 1904, which if we assumed that this was one person, it would have made the attacker active for the last 67 years. And Victorian London, during all of this, I mean, it was just, it was huge. There was a huge fervor on it, or about it. And it, they started to use Spring Hill Jack as a boogeyman type figure. And they would use his legend to scare children into behaving as we would do now. But there are several theories as to who this dude was. And Spring Hill Jack really had two sides of him. So let's get into the first. And this is the one, of course, if you know me but at all and have listened to any of this show, then you know that this is the, the theory that I'm going to ascribe to. Um, the saw him largely as a person. It was a prankster with a dark sense of humor. And I'm more inclined to believe this. However, I'm not going to say that it was a person. I don't think that, not a person, he was a person, but I'm not going to say that he just had a dark sense of humor. Um, I think that he did have a predilection towards assaulting teenage girls. And there was a certain person that was singled out as the possible culprit in around 18, at around 1840. He was the Marquess of Waterford, and he'd had some pretty bad experiences with the law previously, which included drunken fights, dark jokes, vandalism, and gambling. He'd also been known for a vicious contempt for women and was called the Mad Marquis due to this. It was also said that he would do anything for a bet, and many have settled on him as the culprit, uh, with other later sightings being copycats. And the reason why I'm a big fan of this one, if it was the Mad Marquis, is because the letter that was written to the Lord Mayor of London suggested, right, this exact thing, that it was a guy who was doing this for a bet, that he was uh, fairly high up in wealth and in um, title. So yeah, this is exactly who I think it might have been. Um, and again, the later sightings are probably copycats or just people who wanted to keep that, um, that story going or that folklore going. But I do think that this was definitely him using some sort of, I don't know, trickery to look like he was spewing blue flames or that his eyes were burning balls of fire. Um, or the girl was just freaked out and that's just what she saw. Maybe there was a light involved. I'm not sure. So, yeah, uh, there's other theories. <laughs> I'm going to go over them real quick because they're really not anything of substance. 
Um, of course, because it appears in every single story ever. Some people think he was an alien, uh, because of course. Um, and some people think that he was a demon summoned into this world by occultists. That particular theory was really led on by papers and penny dreadfuls and just sensationalist stories that occurred during the time. I mean, he was called the devil, um, he was called the Russian bear, just all kinds of things. So, um, that one was not the surprising one. Now in Prague, a similar character known as Parak, I could for sure be saying this one wrong, so again, correct me. Um, he was known as Parak, the spring man of Prague. And he was seen in Czechoslovakia around the 1940s. He could also leap to supernatural heights, and he was later drawn into comics that had him fighting the SS. spring Jack has also been linked to the Jersey Devil, but I'm not sure why, since the Jersey Devil is more of a cryptid, and this character leans heavily to either a demon or just a person. So when I look at the Jersey Devil, yeah, he's called a devil, but he's also depicted as being more reptilian, more like a flying dinosaur type of some type. And this is really not the same thing. I mean, there were police reports that these girls had filed and there were witnesses that corroborated their stories of having their clothes ripped off with metallic claws um, and being scratched really deeply around the neck and around the chest and the arms. So I don't think he's really linked to the Jersey Devil. I don't think he should be. But, you know, if you have double in the title, you get linked with all the other devils, I guess. <laughs> Who knows? All right. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. spring Hill Jack, while not as brutal, thankfully, right, as um, his other contemporary, not really contemporary, but they're often linked, uh, Jack the Ripper. Not quite the same, right, as that dude. Um, but still super interesting and also interesting in how that mass hysteria can really take hold, um, even in a city as large as London. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. If you have any other stories that you'd like me to cover, um, please reach out, DM me on Instagram. I'm at historical paranormal. I'd love to hear from you. And if you have any other suggestions, especially for true crime occurring before 1950, that would also be interesting because I have a few that I'm, I'm doing some research on now, getting the, the show notes kind of compiled and the outlines compiled for. Um, one of them, I feel like it's been done many times, but it's still so good. And when I say it's been done many times, it's been done by certain podcasts. It's still not a well-known story when I've asked people about it. They're blissfully unaware of it. When I first heard of this story, I... Oh my gosh, I was alone at night, first of all, when I was listening to the story, which is already a mistake. But yeah, I, I scared the crap out of myself. It was also a really windy night. It was just, it was just all contributing to a pretty terrifying night in general. But anyway, until then, have a great week.